I appreciate uh, those kind words, especially about my sweet wife, Mary. Um, Though um, she probably tries to get me more gospel meetings, you know, just to send me out uh, uh, to some other place. Um, Actually, uh, we have been talking about uh, hopefully trying to make uh, arrangements to where she would be able to come with me on these uh, gospel meeting trips and uh, be a part of of these good events too. And I want to thank you for uh, for the invitation to be here. As we were talking in class uh, this morning, for those of you that uh, were not in uh, the class in here this morning, uh, it was 2012 uh, when I was here before in a gospel meeting. Enjoyed that very much, and and um, glad to be back. And I appreciate uh, the invitation to come and be here. My wife and I and our two sons lived in Odessa from 1996 until we left there in 2000, I guess. So 20 years ago, roughly, we were in Odessa, and I think I came up here one Wednesday night on a summer series back then, perhaps. Uh, And uh, so it's good to be with you again. Thankful for the encouragement that I've already been given. Thankful for your presence today. And especially if you are visiting today, if you are just here from out of town or you're, you live here in the community and are here by invitation from one of the members um, or for whatever reason you're here, if you are a guest today, thank you for coming and being a part of this worship assembly. In 1952, a man named J.B. Phillips wrote a book that he called your God is too small. Now, full disclosure, I haven't read that book by Phillips. I've, I had heard of it for a, a long time. And, uh, and so I can't either endorse uh, or not endorse its contents because I haven't read it. But the title has always intrigued me. And I do know enough about having heard of the book and and synopsis and all of that that the idea, the concept behind it has to do not with who God actually is, at least as far as what he means by your God is too small, but our concept of God. That with many Christians, our concept of God is too small. Some Christians have thoughts of God that reveal how low our concept of God is. And that in some cases, maybe our thoughts of God, of who He is, His nature, don't rise very far above our concepts of ourselves as human beings. God once told His people in in a very... A straightforward rebuke in Psalm 50, verse 21. You thought, God said to his people, you thought that I was altogether like unto yourselves. In other words, God said, you, you thought that I was just like you. And his point was, I'm not just like you. But we need to be careful that when we think about God, that we don't think about God in terms that are too low, that we recognize and truly appreciate the greatness or the majesty, if you will, of God. 
If our concept of God is too low, if our God is too small, if our thoughts of God and who He is, if those thoughts are not where they ought to be, there are at least two things that will result from that, and neither one of them we really want. Our faith will be weak, and our worship will be meaningless. If we don't have a proper concept of who God is, our faith will be weak because why would we trust in a being that has no greater characteristics than my characteristics? If he's no better than I am, if he's no more powerful than the next guy, why put my complete and total trust in him? So if our concept of God is too low, our faith will be weak and our worship will be meaningless. Why offer praise, genuine, heartfelt worship to a being that's not any greater than I am or that's not any greater than the next person? This week we're talking about pursuing God. And in our class this morning, we, we spoke about the importance of Pursuing God regularly, constantly, daily. Whether we think our relationship with God is near perfect or whether our relationship with God is, we're struggling with it or whether we're somewhere in between. The Bible teaches us that we were created to pursue God. Acts seventeen twenty seven. God created every nation to dwell upon the face of the earth, every person that dwells on the face of the earth, God created that they would seek Him in the hopes that they might find Him. And He's not far from any one of us. And so that's our topic. That's our overall theme for this series of lessons today through Wednesday is our pursuit of God. And so we're going to talk about that from a couple of different vantage points as these lessons progress throughout the week. We're going to talk about God and who God is so that we have a proper grasp of of the God that we're pursuing. But we're also going to spend time talking about the pursuit itself, what our responsibilities are, how we are to go about pursuing and deepening our relationship with God. And so this morning, in this lesson, we're going to focus on one of these characteristics of God, and that is His majesty. Or we might say his greatness. Ultimately, life is all about this pursuit. We mentioned John 17, 3 earlier. This is life eternal, Jesus said, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is wrapped up in this pursuit of God. And if we would truly come to know God, we must come to know and appreciate His majesty, His greatness. And to do that today, to help us in our appreciation of the majesty of God, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6. And thanks to the young man who read that text earlier, had a couple of uh, difficult words in there, and he handled those admirably. A fine job. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This was the time when God called Isaiah to his prophetic job. And 
Let's look at the text. We'll work ourselves through it just by way of paraphrase or explanation, and then we'll draw the lessons from it. So let's look at the text, Isaiah chapter 6, and work ourselves through those first eight verses just so that we have a grasp of what's happening in the text. This happens in the year of King Isaiah's death. And Isaiah says in, in that year, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, lofty and exalted. This is some kind of a vision that Isaiah is seeing of the exalted God of heaven. And the vision is taking place in the temple. Now, whether or not Isaiah was physically in the temple or in the temple area and saw this vision or he's somewhere else but the vision is of the temple, is not specifically laid out. I tend to think he was at the temple area, but but that's neither here nor there. The vision involves the temple. And he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple, the text says. And there were seraphim above him. Seraphim are these winged, angelic-type heavenly creatures, similar to cherubim, which we read about, for example, in the book of Ezekiel and other places. So we don't know a whole lot about these creatures, but they were there in this vision temple setting. And these seraphim, these heavenly creatures, are shouting out, crying out the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. An interesting thing about that is, you know, God has a lot of characteristics. God is love, right? 1 John 4, verse 8. God is compassionate. God is just. God is merciful. God is gracious. God has a lot of characteristics. Only one of God's characteristics is ever mentioned in Scripture in triplicate. You never read, love, love, love is the Lord God, though God is love, 1 John 4, 8. I'm not denying that. But the Hebrews had a way of expressing and emphasizing things, and one of the ways was to speak it in threes, to speak it in triplicate. And the only characteristic of God that you find in triplicate in Scripture is His holiness. Holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God of hosts. And that's what Isaiah is hearing from these heavenly creatures as they cry out in praise to God. And he says it was so loud that the foundations of the temple were shaking. Verse number 4. And the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah cries out at this sight, Woe is me. I am undone, ruined, a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And right about that time, one of these winged creatures flies to the altar where there are burning coals, uses tongs and picks up one of those burning coals and flies over to where Isaiah is, and touches the coal to his mouth and says, This 
has touched your lips. Your iniquity is cleansed. Your sin purged. And then Isaiah hears a voice saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. There are different places in Scripture where when I've read it, I've thought, I like to have been a fly on the wall and witnessed certain things. I think about the, um, uh, the time when Jesus spoke with a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. And the Bible says that Jesus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them the scriptures concerning himself. I'd like to have heard that sermon. Jesus preaching to others about himself. Here's another one of those, Isaiah chapter 6. To have seen what Isaiah saw, this vision of the majesty and greatness of God. Well, what do we learn from it? What are the lessons about our pursuit of God? Who is this God that we're pursuing? And what do we learn about that pursuit and about this God from Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 8? I want you to consider these points this morning. First of all, let's consider the majesty of God revealed and explained in this text. The majesty of God revealed and explained. Notice the first thing Isaiah saw was God high and lifted up. Lofty and exalted. A picture, a vision of God's majesty, His greatness. And the Bible speaks often of the greatness of God, His majesty. He is robed in majesty. Psalm 93, verse 1. The psalmist spoke of the glorious splendor of His majesty. Psalm 145, verse 5. Two times in the book of Hebrews, the word majesty is substituted for the word God. Chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is... The Son of God is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What does he mean by that? Well, the right hand of God. But majesty is the word substituted for God. He does the same thing in Hebrews 8, verse 1. Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The majestic, the great. Who is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness? The question of Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like the Lord our God, seated on high? Psalm 113, verse 5. It's good for us to think about the greatness of God and that regularly. Think about God for a moment. At His word, the Red Sea parted. Exodus chapter 14. At his word, the earth opened up and swallowed the rebellious ones. Numbers chapter 16. At his word, the sun stood still in the sky. Joshua chapter 10. At his word, ravens came and carried food to Elijah the prophet. 1 Kings chapter 17. At his word, the mouths of lions were closed. 
and did Daniel no harm, Daniel chapter 6. You just read through your text of the Bible and you will on practically every page see examples of the majesty, the greatness of God. And we are in the presence of that same God this very moment. We can't allow ourselves to forget that. Sometimes things just become routine for us. Because we do them often, because we do them often in the same place with the same people, and worship is that way. We, we, we gather in the same place every week, right? We gather with the same people. Most of the time we sit in the same place and we sing, we pray. We do all of these things that, that are a part of our worship assemblies. And, all, and, and please don't misunderstand. That's what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to assemble. We are supposed to sing and pray and observe the supper. All of those things are right and good. But because we do them repeatedly, it's possible for us to be able to do them on autopilot to where our minds are not really engaged in what we're doing because it has become so commonplace. You ever get in your car and drive to some place where you go to constantly, maybe it's to work, maybe it's here to the assembly, whatever it may be, and, and you get there and you can't even remember the specifics of what you saw on the way because your mind was not focused on that. You're on autopilot. You can do this so easily. It's become second nature. Sometimes worship can be that way if we're not careful. Because we do it so often, we forget sometimes, if we're not careful, we'll forget that we have come into, in a very special sense, the presence of the majestic God of heaven. The same one that Isaiah saw in that vision, the same one that that did all of those things we mentioned, parting the Red Sea and opening the earth, all of those things. Yes, it's true we're in the presence of God wherever we are. Right? The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15. But there is a special sense, and Scripture uses this language of how we, when we come to worship God, we do in a very special sense come into His presence. We come into His courts with praise. We must not allow ourselves to forget that because when we do, it will affect our worship. See, when we lose sight of the majesty of God, the greatness of God, that's when the songs become boring to us. When we lose sight of the majesty of God, that's when we become more easily distracted by other things, lesser things. When we lose sight of the majesty of God, that's when we begin to think that instead of engaging heart and mind and soul and body in the worship, I'd just rather text someone on my phone. When we lose sight of the majesty of God, that's when we begin to worry about lesser things. 
when Isaiah went to the temple that day, when he was caught up in this vision, he was reminded once more about the greatness of God. And I wonder sometimes if some of us are not losing a proper sense of God's majesty, the one who, according to Daniel 5, verse 23, holds our breath in his hand. Majestic. We sing sometimes, our God is an awesome God. Indeed, he is. And Isaiah saw that in a vision. We have to see it through the eye of faith, but we can still see it. And we should. In the second place, the majesty of God reminds us of who we are. Not only does the majesty of God help us to understand who God is, His greatness, but understanding and appreciating the majesty of God also shines a light on who we are. Look back in the text in Isaiah 6. After Isaiah says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up and he describes the scene the train of his robe filling the temple, the temple's filling up with smoke as these heavenly creatures are shouting out the greatness and holiness of God. Notice what his response is in verse number 5. Woe is me. I'm undone. New American Standard reads, I'm ruined I'm a man of unclean lips. I I live among people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the, the, the Lord of hosts. I am ruined. When Isaiah experienced the majesty of God, that's what he saw in himself. Supreme greatness on the one hand and feeble flesh on the other was almost more than Isaiah could bear. And I would offer this thought to all of us today. That we cannot be impressed with the majesty of God without also being impressed with our own inferiority in comparison to the majesty of God. David put it this way in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? David considered the greatness of God as seen in the creation, and he was struck with his own Humanity. If we're honest with ourselves, when we consider the majesty of God, we'll find the same thing Isaiah did. We'll find a person undeserving of anything good. We'll be like those seraphim who who covered their faces. Or that publican in Luke 18 who would not even lift his eyes toward heaven because of his shame. Jesus in the Beatitudes expressed the idea that for a person to be acceptable with God, the first thing they need to be is poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 3 and 4. Poor in spirit. We can't be that without first understanding 
the majesty and holiness of God, the greatness of God, because He's the standard. And when we have a proper appreciation for God, the standard, we'll have no other response if we're honest with ourselves than to be poor in spirit and recognize who we are in comparison. The majesty of God reminds us of who we are. Number three, our majestic God is still personal. Even though he's high and lifted up, he is still a personal God. Isaiah had reached the end of his rope. We're back in our text, Isaiah 6. He's cried out, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm ruined. He believes he's doomed to receive the wrath of this holy God who is of purer eyes than to look favorably upon evil, Habakkuk 1.13. And at that moment, one of those seraphim flew over and announced that his sins had been forgiven. A proper recognition of the majesty of God leads us to realize what we can't do for ourselves that God must do for us. And that's forgive us. And that leads to profound joy and happiness. That God, though high and lifted up, though separated from us in holiness, separated from us in majesty, He still is willing to condescend to people of low estate and personally... Through Jesus, His Son, take away our sin. And that ought to make us joyous, shouldn't it? Shouldn't that joy and happiness be reflected in our worship to God? When we sing songs like, Majesty, worship His majesty. When we sing, You are Beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. Too wonderful for comprehension like nothing ever seen or heard. When we properly grasp the majesty of God, the greatness of God, and properly understand who we are in comparison to that, and then we realize what God has done for us in forgiving our sins through Jesus Christ, should we not burst forth in worship and praise? Number four. Final point. The majesty of God should be experienced by all. The majesty of God should be experienced by all. Look at verse number 8. After Isaiah has experienced himself a vision of the greatness and majesty of God, and in response to that he recognizes and sees himself as a man ruined, undone, doomed, But then God intervenes and cleanses his sin, no doubt causing great joy on Isaiah's part. And then when he hears God saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? It's because of the great joy and satisfaction and appreciation that Isaiah now feels because he's no longer a man of unclean lips. He's been cleansed. He's been forgiven. That when God says, who can I send? Isaiah says right here. 
It's almost as if you get the picture that Isaiah is waving his hand saying, Don't overlook me. Here, look at me. I'm ready. I'll go. When Isaiah had experienced all of that, impressed with God's goodness, impressed with his majesty, grateful for his forgiveness, he wanted other people to experience this majestic and holy God. That's what a proper recognition of God's greatness will lead to. Yet many times when the cry goes out from Scripture, God essentially saying today, whom, whom shall I send? Who, who will go for us? How many times do we respond, not send me, but why me? Why me? I don't really know the answer to that question. I guess each individual will have to answer it for himself or herself. But I can't help but wonder. As I think about my own life and myself and sometimes my own reluctance to reach out to others, I wonder if it's an indication that I'm losing my appreciation for the majesty of God. Am I losing something of my concept of the greatness of God? I don't know. I have, to, I have to look deep within myself to answer that question. And I encourage you to look deep within yourself and answer it too. But I do know this as we wrap things up this morning. I know Isaiah left that temple that day a changed person. I don't know what he was expecting that day when he got up. He was traveling down to the temple area. I don't know what he was expecting. But I know he left a changed person. I don't know what you were expecting this morning. When you got up and went through your regular routine on Sunday morning, whatever that is, and you made your way up. I don't know what you were expecting. But I know this. You can leave this building today a changed person. If you'll spend some time reflecting on the majesty of God and allowing your appreciation for His majesty to be shown in your worship and in your life. I want to say something to myself and then... I'll just let you listen in, and if you can make some application to yourself, you feel free. But if I ever say to myself, I I just didn't get much out of worship today. I'm saying a whole lot more about myself than I'm saying about my God. Every time we assemble together can be a time in which we leave changed people changed for the better but that will never happen if we can't recapture a sense of the majesty and greatness of God are you pursuing 
God? Are you deepening your appreciation for His greatness and His majesty? If you need to refocus your life in that way, to get yourself back on track in your pursuit of God, do not delay to make whatever changes in your life you need to make. There may be someone in the assembly this morning who's not yet a Christian. And you are ready to pursue God in a way you've never pursued Him before. If you're ready to respond to the grace of God as expressed through Jesus Christ who died for you and you're willing to put your faith, your confidence, your complete trust in Jesus and in His death, do that today. If you're willing to turn from your sins and penitence and turn yourself to God and confess your faith in Christ and allow yourself to be immersed in water to contact His saving blood and have that blood wash your sins away so you can be raised from that water to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3 to 5. Do it today. Christian, let me talk to you for just a second. If you need to reorganize your priorities to where your pursuit of God is first and foremost in your life. Do it. Figure out whatever it is that's in your way right now and get that thing or those things out of your way and put God right back on the throne of your heart where he's supposed to be. If we may help you with that in praying with you and for you today, Let us know your need, your desire. Let us stand and sing.